Good morning. I begin in Psalms chapter 23, where there the passage says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just a few moments, we're going to be talking about how God leads us. We're thankful to have each of you with us today. This is the best day of the week. We say that often here. We never take that for granted. To come in the presence of God is an amazing thing. Lots of places we could be, lots of places God could be. But when we connect together, what an amazing, amazing thing that is. And we are thankful to have each one of you with us. Let me take just a moment before I get into my sermon and say something personal. A lot of you know we've been on a journey here this past week, up and down, roller coaster, tears, fear, lots of prayers for our Jordan. Jordan's doing very well. He's coming home from the hospital today. He's recovering quickly. Still waiting for some pathology reports to just put a, a conclusion on some of these things. But I want us to know, I want you to know from Debbie and my perspective, your prayers, the outpouring your love, so many texts, so many phone calls from you touched our hearts. They made a difference. And sometimes when somebody says, well, I'm praying for you, you don't realize how important that is. And when you're going through some scary things, you don't realize how important it is to have the army of God behind you. And I want to say thank you to each of you about that. It seemed like, and I don't know why, on this journey, this hasn't happened to me much before, but I would wake up in the morning with just a hymn in my mind. And I don't know if the Lord's trying to comfort me doing that. I remember one morning just waking up and thinking about the hymn, uh, Our God is a Mighty Fortress. And we were waiting for some very important reports and that hymn was in my mind. And then the other day, just for some reason, one of the songs we sing at VBS came into my mind. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And sometimes these hymns just bring a comfort to you. And life can be like a roller coaster. So many of us in this room have been on this roller coaster before. Up and down, motions up and down, fears up and down. And this is kind of the concept we see throughout Bible history. When Israel left Egypt, and then that mighty Pharaoh and his army was chasing them. And how they stood before the Red Sea, fear, wondering if this is going to be the end of their life. But my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. And those waters crushed the Egyptians. And then we think about the promised land. And there stood a fortified Jericho. How in the world would they overcome that? And yet, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And those walls came tumbling down. And in our Bibles, we read about fiery furnaces and lion's den and prisons and captivity. And over and over, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And then we come to our Gospels, and there's our pure Jesus, so innocent, so good, so helpful, and he was nailed to a cross that seemed like the end. But up from the grave he arose. My God is so big, 
so strong, so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The flow of Psalms 23, where we just began, shows us green pastures and quiet waters. And they remind us of being before our enemies and even dark valleys. But these things weren't stumbled upon. It was not that they discovered them on their own. They were following the shepherd. And over and over in that wonderful passage, he leads me, he guides me. The idea of God doing these things. And so this morning what we want to talk about, we want to look at this little lesson about how we are led by God. And how important that is. You know, in the movie Wizard of Oz, the direction was follow the yellow brick road. Over and over, Dorothy was told that. The little munchkins come out, follow the yellow brick road, and that would lead you exactly where you wanted to go. If you're in high school and you want to go to college, there's a certain path you've got to take to get into college. If you're in college and you're after a certain degree, there's certain classes, there's a certain path you must take to accomplish that. If you're looking to retire someday and you sit down with your financial advisor, there's a certain path you must take if you really want to do those things. And so we see all throughout life this concept. But we need to understand God has never left his people alone. He's never left us on our own. He never said, try to find me, I'm out here somewhere. He has never done that. And notice some examples in our Bible. In Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place where he was to receive foreign inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God said, go. Abraham could say, where? I'm not telling you. I lead you. God knew where he was going. Abraham didn't. We look again in the book of Exodus as it talks about how God led Israel, that there was a pillar of cloud in the day and, and a, a pillar of fire at night, and that as they would travel day and night, God would lead them. In our auditorium class on Sunday, we're talking about Joshua. And as they crossed that Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant went before them. And it says, however, there shall be a distance between, uh, between you, a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, that you may know the way which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. You're going to new territory, but guess what? I've been there. I am leading you. God leads us. Book of Joshua, the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and seek and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. God is leading. That's a concept we see. And of course, our Savior, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way. And so as we begin this lesson, we need to understand that God has never left us on our own to find our own way. Because first of all, we tend to get lost. We do that quite a bit. And so we find this passage here in the book of Proverbs in chapter 14, where there the proverb writer would remind us there is a way that seems right. It looks good. It feels right. I think I should do this. Everything within me says I'm going the right direction, but it is the way of death. And Satan has a way of making dead ends look right. That's why he traps us so easy. So God wants us to follow him. God leads us. And there are times in our lives when we want to run ahead of God. We want to go a different direction than God. And there's times in our lives when we simply want to stop too soon. But over and over we think about that little hymn. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, 
There's nothing my God cannot do. And so God leads us in a number of ways. One of the ways God leads us is through his word. The psalmist would say it this way in Psalms 119, Your path is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Again, the idea of a light. You wake up in the middle of the night and it's dark. I usually turn my phone on so I can see. When we first moved in our house where we are living now, I don't know if I ever told you the story or not, but I get up real early Sunday mornings. I have a little office in my, in my house, and so I go in there and do a little studying early in the morning. And out of my office, there's a stairway down to the basement, and then there's the opening to go to the kitchen. So I done my studying. I was going to go in the kitchen, get a drink, and I turned. I thought I turned, and I went down the stairway, and I flipped about four times down there, slid all the way down. Thought I broke my hip. First thing I did is I laid there and said, okay, 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 okay. Miss Debbie didn't even come. She said, I heard something. I said, well, great. I'm laying down there dead. You know? But you know what you do is you turn on a light. And what I'm saying is God's word is a light. Notice in the same chapter in verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. That's the value of the Bible, that it will illuminate you. It will help you see what's wrong and what's right. This is one way God leads you. Another way God leads you is through shepherds. And last Sunday, it was announced, we put forth three names for the congregation to consider to be future elders here. Nathan Soliday, Jason Harden, and Shannon Schaefer. All godly men, all godly servants, All men who have proven themselves that they love you. And so for the next two or three weeks, you're to give thought to them. But what I want to do this morning is spend a little bit of time and talk to you about this role of elder, the role of shepherd. I want you to understand what we're looking at. And so we begin by looking at some fundamental passages. Here in the book of Acts chapter 20, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock. That's the first thing we see. That's one of the things that they do. They guard us. They protect us. When mom and dad walk down, they have little kids with them. What do they do when they get to their intersection? They hold their hands. Why? Because they are protecting the little ones. One of the roles of shepherds and elders is to protect us. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And there's the expression to shepherd, to care for them. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And again, the idea of an overseer or a bishop. These are the concepts we're going to be seeing as we talk about this this morning. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as your lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. We notice from these passages there's always a plurality in the church. We notice in these passages that the extent of the work is a congregation that is among them. Not at seeing all the other churches, not a worldwide network, not something that our other friends do in different churches, but this is the biblical concept that we see. And so we begin with this word elder. 
And the first thing that comes to our mind is old, elderly, frail. My grandkids tell me, PJ, you're old. And I say, no dessert. <laughs> Elder does not necessarily talk about age here. It's describing the quality of the man. What he's telling us is spiritual maturity. That's what's being looked upon. Here's somebody who has a little bit of time on him. Here's a little, someone who has some experience. Here's somebody who's seen some battles. He has some experience upon him. Now, again, we may take a 14-year-old. We may take a 12-year-old, especially a male, young man who's 12 years old. He's, he's tall enough that his feet fit the pedals, and he can look over the steering wheel. Why can't he drive? He's tall enough. The answer is maturity. Maturity. And that's the concept we see here. So when we think about the word elder, we're talking about someone who is spiritually mature. And how valuable that is as we consider that. Now in your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. We commonly call these the qualifications. I like the word qualities. Characteristics much better. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And here he says... It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Notice two things right there. There's our word overseer or bishop, and it is a work. It's not a position. We're going to mention that in just a minute. It's not a position. It doesn't mean you get your name on the board, to get your name on a piece of stationery. It doesn't mean you're, you're at the top of the ladder. It is the idea that you have a work you're going to be doing, and we'll be expressing that in just a moment. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. What we're noticing here is, is a look at his heart. We're noticing a look at his home. We're looking at his social life. And we're looking at relationships. And all of that, we're looking at the totality of a man. And what we're noticing is, here's a righteous man. Here's somebody who has godly living. Here's an example of what God wants us to be. That's the concept of the elder. Now... A lot of times, I think too many times, the only time we ever talk about this is when someone is appointed. I think too many times we put too much emphasis upon the man and not what he's supposed to do. To illustrate this, there are three qualifications to be president of the United States. You have to be a natural born citizen, you have to be at least 35 years old, and you have to live here the last 14 years. And so here's a guy who's unemployed, lives with his mama, and plays video games all day long. According to the qualifications, he's qualified. But you and I both know as much, much more than that. And so that takes us to the next word, shepherd. And the idea of a shepherd, this describes the work. It describes the responsibility and the focus upon the work. And this idea that he's going to be caring for, he's going to be feeding, he's going to be helping the people among him. It is here in the book of Ephesians that we get the word pastor. 
Ephesians 4, verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. The pastor is not the preacher. Understand that? How many times? Well, my pastor says, and what they mean is my preacher. Let's be biblically accurate. Let's be smart with God's word. The word pastor here is the same word for shepherd, pastoring, pastoring the sheep. Understand that? That's the concept. And so what we see here with this word and what we see this concept here is someone who's caring for the sheep that God has put before him. You know, every season, especially in the wintertime, school superintendents have to make the tough call. Snowing outside. There's some ice. When we were in Dallas last week, they had a major ice storm. And schools were closed for three days. Now, who makes that call? The parents? The kids? No school. No. Bus drivers? It's the superintendent. And I've known some superintendents. And they get up at 3 in the morning. They're driving the town. They're driving around. They have, to, they have the well-being of the staff and the kids in mind. And they have to make that tough call. We're going to have school. We're going to cancel school. Why do they make that call? It's not because of what they feel like. They make that call because they, in a way, are shepherding those kids. They are looking after them. That's the idea behind this word. They shepherd us. They help us. In Luke 15, when Jesus told the story about the one lost sheep, and he's found and brought back, notice what verse 5 says, when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, shepherding. The other word the Bible uses is the word bishop, and this is the nature of the work. This, how does he do shepherding? And the word bishop simply means to look over. It, it's the idea to look intensely. It's the idea of, of being an overseer. And if you got your Bible, let's notice two passages that really bring this up. James chapter 1 and verse 25. James 1 verse 25 and then also verse 27. James 1 verse 25 says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. That's the idea. Looking intently. If after services I was to say, I didn't mean to, but I scraped your car Coming in, well, you go out and look at it. Where did shouts hit me? You'd look intently. And when a doctor has some report done and he's looking at your test results, do you want him to do that during the IU Purdue game? Ah, it looks okay to me. No, you want him to look intently. I don't want him to be bothered. I want you to look intently at these things. That's the idea of a bishop. He's watching, not with his radar gun, but to see how he can help you. How he can strengthen you. Now verse 27, same chapter. This is pure and undefiled religion, the sight of our God and Father, to visit. The word visit is from the same word where we get the word bishop. To visit orphans and widows in distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. When we think about visiting, we think about going by, hi, how are you doing? Got any tea? I drink some tea and I'll leave you. Visit means to take care of their needs. Here are orphans, I'm going to take care of their needs. Here's widows, I'm going to take care of their needs. That's the idea of a bishop. He is busy taking care of the needs. So here's a man who is spiritually mature. He's experienced. He is an elder. 
He does what the shepherd, the people of God. He looks after the people of God. And the way he does it is by overseeing them, by watching them. Watching them to see if they're eating well. Watching them to see if they're growing. Watching them to see if they're doing as they should be doing. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Put your ribbon there because we're going to come back to this passage in a little bit. But Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. God's disappointed with the shepherds of Israel. In fact, he denounces them and eventually takes away the sheep from them. But in Ezekiel 34, I want you to notice verse 4. Let's read it, then we'll notice two words here. Ezekiel 34, verse 4. Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened. The diseased, you've not healed. The broken, you've not bound up. The scattered, you've not brought back. Nor have you sought for loss, for the loss, but with fierce and with severity, you have dominated them. They simply hadn't done their job. And God said, I'm firing you. I'm taking the sheep away from you. What you should be doing, you're not. Now, I want you to notice two words in verse 4. The sickly and the diseased. There's some doctors among us. If you go in for a doctor appointment tomorrow and he says, you have the flu, here's the route we're going to go. If he says, you know what, you've got cancer. There's a difference between flu and cancer, isn't there? And what we need to see is the bishop recognizes that. Here's somebody that's just a little bit sick and needs a little bit of encouragement. Here's somebody that's got a serious spiritual disease. He not only recognizes the difference, he knows what remedy to bring about health in them. That's the concept of a bishop. That's the work that they're doing. Now, within this, we understand from studies of people who lived over there, there's three things that upset the sheep. Number one, when there's tension in the flock. When you and I are not getting along with each other. And what does the shepherd do? Shepherd brings us on the same page. He brings unity among us. A second thing that bothers the sheep is when they are frightened. And what does the shepherd do? He makes them calm. He gives them assurance in Jesus Christ. He reminds them of the promises of God. And then the third thing that bugs sheep is when there's bugs in their ears and flies on their nose because they can't scratch like a dog. And guess what the shepherd has to do? Yeah, he's got to put his finger in their ears. He's got to pull out those bugs. And some of the job is messy. And some of it's hard to do. Now, what we do not find here, I want you to listen carefully to me. I want you to listen carefully to me. I've never been in a church where everyone got this. What we do not find here is that they run the church. They do not run the church. Jesus Christ runs the church, not the shepherds. They are not the boss. This has nothing to do with control or power. Well, these guys are going to have all the control. They're going to run the church. Those who say such things have a wrong biblical concept. You need to understand elder, shepherd, and bishop. Now, are there decisions they have to make? Absolutely. When the shepherd led him by green water, or rather green pasture, time to lay down, he had to find that. When he went by quiet waters, he had to find it. There are decisions they have to make within the network of what they're doing. I believe for years and years, this is the concept we've had of God's organization. Jesus at the top, elders are second, then there are deacons, and I'm just a member. And I've had people say that, well, I'm just a member. You're not just a member. You're blood-bought by Jesus Christ. You're a saint in God's family. You are part of God's kingdom. 
Never feel like I am just the same. And, I, and if I could be a man, sorry ladies, but if I could be a man and sometimes get promoted, I could be a deacon. And then somehow if I could get my act together, I could be promoted and I could be an elder. This is not the biblical pattern. This is the biblical pattern. Jesus is above all of us. Shepherds lead us. Deacons serve us. All of us are on a straight line following God. That's the way it should be. Now, what shepherds do? They provide a sense of safety and security. In that wonderful John 10 passage, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. We come again to this wonderful statement here. He says, he who is a hired hand or a hireling, not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's what the hireling does. He's, he does not care about the sheep. He's only thinking about self. What does a shepherd do? He's going to stay there and fight the wolf. He's going to protect them. He's going to be the, the wall between the wolf and the sheep. And it may be a bloodbath. But that shepherd's going to fight and fight and fight. He's going to keep air from entering your heart. He's going to try to keep worldliness from entering your heart. Why? Because he's fighting for all he has. You are in his mind. You, he understands, is his possession to get to Jesus Christ. Secondly, shepherds provide a proper diet. I want to read you something. I wrote this not too long ago. As I read this, I want you to mind, just listen to me. Am I talking about this place? Am I talking about one of you? And as I wrote this, could have been you. Matthew 14, verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. I saw a man die the other day. It wasn't a thought I will quickly forget. He didn't have to die. Without admitting it, he chose to die. He hadn't taken care of himself for a long, long time. Poor choices, terrible habits, and a stubborn attitude all contributed heavily to his death. In the end, he died from malnutrition. He starved to death. He wasn't living in a third world country where food and options are very limited. No, he died right here where everything was available to him. He wouldn't go to the doctor. He wouldn't listen to sound advice. When given food, he refused to eat. Weaker and weaker he became until he died. I left wondering what could have been done differently. What could I have done to prevent this death? Everyone saw it coming, but his closed heart and thick pride kept everyone at a distance. No one could reach him. No one could turn him. And he died. A death that didn't have to happen, but it did. His death wasn't physical. He didn't die from a lack of bread and water. He died spiritually. In a large congregation that has so many tools, so many ways to feed, abundant classes being taught throughout the week, blogs, podcasts, a website filled daily with spiritual food, this man refused to eat spiritually. He limited his contact and fellowship. He'd rather hang out with the world than disciples of Jesus. He fed his passions, but not his soul. It's baffling to me how some in the congregation that has everything still choose to starve themselves. Food is on the table, but they will not eat. They attend, but they're not there in mind or spirit. Never bringing a Bible, never engaging with anyone, and then the bottom drops out of their life. 
The old expression, you, can't, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, seems so fitting here. More people care about his soul than he did. More were praying for him than he prayed for himself. Sitting at a banquet table full of options and wonderful food, he goes home hungry, empty, and miserable. Our verse today comes from the feeding of the multitudes. Jesus increased the food. The verse says, they all ate and were satisfied. Spiritually, this is what shepherds and preachers are driving at. We want everyone to eat. Yet there sits in the audience the man who's dying spiritually. He doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know the value of making right choices. People his age are all around him, but he keeps his distance. The potential is there for him to grow strong. He could turn his family around. He could one day serve as a deacon or even a shepherd. But that won't be. More wrong choices follow more wrong choices. He is not interested. He attends our habit, not love. And right there at the banquet table, he dies spiritually from starvation. What he needed was there, but he never took the effort. Dozens and dozens of people would love to have the opportunity that he has, but he doesn't care. He's a man of the world, lost, misguided, miserable. He dies right among the people of God, and he doesn't even see it. They all ate, and no one left that hillside hungry. Jesus provided, and they partook. They needed food, and Jesus understood that. And today, it's no different spiritually. People need to be fed spiritually. We need to preach and teach relevant lessons that will guide people through the fog of today's world. The isms of yesterday is not what's on people's mind and the hearts today. Our culture is turning things inside out. The world is getting darker. We need to know how to navigate through these things. We need to learn how to raise godly families in the ungodly world. Provide the food. That's our job. As preachers and shepherds, provide it in a number of ways. Provide it to where the people are. But there comes a time when you and I have to pick up a fork and eat. Starving at a banquet table full of food makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to heaven and it doesn't make sense to the people of God. Wasted opportunities. Closing your eyes to the very things you need. Turning your back on what will help you. And in the end, it's not the food on the table. It's not the sermons from the pulpit. It's not the classes that are taught. It's not the articles, the blogs, the podcasts that are made available. It's a heart that is closed to Jesus. And that heart can only be opened from the inside. We pray. We have conversations. We preach. But in the end, some will starve at the banquet table full of food. They did not come to eat. They were never filled. And because of that, some will lose their souls. Such a tragedy. I saw a man die. Could that have been you? When I wrote those words, who did I have in mind? Shepherds provide a diet that we need. Thirdly, shepherds provide needed direction. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Again, the idea of this. And so as we kind of wrap this up, some things to consider. It is such an honor. It's such a blessing to have a congregation where men are qualified and we can put forth their names. It's such an honor to think we can increase the number of shepherds here just to help us so much more. Some things to consider, number one, they're not flawless. Only Jesus is. Keep that in mind. And secondly, do not begin with the assumption of having to find something wrong. Shame on us when we do that. It's like whenever somebody's put up for Supreme Court, if he's a Republican, the Democrats do that. If the Democrats do it, the Republicans do it. Immediately they go through everything in his life. I've got to find something that's wrong so I can say he can't do it. 
That should not be in our mind. As we think about Shannon, Jason, and Nathan, we should see that these guys have been doing things. They have been doing things for years. They love you so much. We need to see what an honor it would be to have them. God knows we need leaders, and this is God's help for us. And this is just one of many ways that God leads us. I want to end this morning by reading you the words of a poem. And again, it's fitting to the concept of what shepherds are doing and what we're trying to do in this congregation. It says, I think oft times as the night draws nigh of an old house on the hill, of a yard wide and blossom-starred where the children played at will. And then at night at last it came, hushing the merry din, mother would look around and ask, are all the children in? Tis many and many years since then, and the old house on the hill no longer echoes to childish feet, and the yard is still so still. But I see it all as the shadows creep, and, though, and through many the years have been, and since I can still hear my mother ask, are all the children in? I wonder if when the shadows fall on the last short earthly day, when we say goodbye to the world outside and our tired old childish play, when we step out into the other land where mother so long has been, will we hear her ask, just as of old, are all the children in? That's the desire of the eldership here. That's the desire of all the shepherds. That's the desire of God, that all of us will be in heaven someday. We need help. And that's why God has provided it. Can you imagine God just leaving it on your own? Well, you got in that mess. Get it out yourself. What a mess that would be. Can you imagine how difficult it would be if we say, I don't know who to follow. There's so many people. But God has put before us certain men, good men, lovely men, men who care. Perfect they are not. Jesus they will never be. But men who have a desire to get you in heaven are all the children in. That's our desire. Well, that's our thoughts for us this morning. I want you to give some thought to this. This is an important part of our church history, important part of our, what we're doing here. And as you give thought to this, pray about this, think about this, read these verses I've given to you, and see how important it is. I want to go back to Ezekiel one more time, Ezekiel 34, as we end this. And we read verse 4, where God basically fired the shepherds of Israel because they weren't doing anything. Now, all they were doing was taking care of themselves, and they were ignoring the flock. So starting in verse 11, God speaks of what he's going to do. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams and in the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in the rich pastures in the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring them back to scattered and help the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with my judgment. As for you, my flock, says the Lord God, my flock. What a joy it is to know that God cares for you and God wants you 
in heaven. And God tries to provide these things with us. And so this morning, if you're not a Christian, you need to become one. You need to realize that this life is hard, this life is difficult, and you need the guidance of God. You need to be on God's side of things. And you do that by giving your heart to God, following him, being baptized for remission of your sins. And among us as this church family, what an honor it is to look among us. I believe when a church puts in elders, it's one of the high point of a church's history. Such a wonderful thing. We got other men, I want you to start thinking about this. Maybe in a year or two, three years, you're not far away. Be thinking about this wonderful thing. Get busy with the people of God. This is our family. This is our people. And how important it is to do what God wants us to do. If we can help you in any way, why don't you come as we stand, as we sing.